today on Ag News Daily. There aren't 89.5% white folks in this country. So to bring some equity to that would be to help farmers that are from other groups. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Thursday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr. It is a short week this week, Ashton, so it kind of threw me through a loop today. I know. I'm pretty excited about it really being like a Friday today. I've made plans with my family to hang out later this afternoon and do some stuff tomorrow. So I'm excited to get a little bit of a break. We don't always get a break here on the podcast. So it's nice when markets are closed, I've got to say. It is. Yes. Just think about doing that now for four years, Ashton, with little (laughs) breaks. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But yeah, we'll be off tomorrow for the podcast. So today will be our last one this week. And I think we're talking to Administrator Douche now from the FSA later on. Is that right, Ashton? Yes, we are. Oh, fantastic. I love when I get the schedule correct. Uh, So we'll be talking about that later, talking about uh, the administration's plans for diversity and inclusion within the USDA. But before we get to that interview, Ashton, why don't we kick it off with some news? What are you watching for today? Well, to kick things off, I've just got a short little piece about Archer Daniels Midland. Earlier today, ADM said that it plans to restart production at two of its U.S. corn dry mills this year as it expects demand for ethanol to surge, which I guess this is a a pretty good thing. We've been hearing little things about the ethanol industry. I haven't yet really secured a state of the industry interview. So I might hop back on that train and see if we can get somebody on there. But the company will restart production at its Vantage Corn Processors Dry Mills in Cedar Rapids, Iowa and Columbus, Nebraska, and begin corn grind immediately. So some some good news there from ADM. Yes, I saw that news as well. So I'm glad you brought it up, Ashton. I'm trying to find this story in my news wires to make sure I get all the facts correct. But uh, here's an interesting one for you. There has been a man out of Washington state that has been convicted for defrauding Tyson Foods and another unnamed company in this lawsuit. But this rancher, Ashton, that lives in Mesa, Washington, name of Cody Easterday, has apparently defrauded Tyson Foods for just about four years now, from 2016 until end of 2020, basically. Uh, But Ashton, here's basically his scam. He was in cahoots. He was in partnership, let's say, with Tyson Foods. And essentially, Tyson agreed to a series of contracts with Cody that they would prepay Cody to buy and raise cattle on behalf of Tyson and then, you know, repay them if there was any different difference in costs, et cetera, but repay them. Easter day would repay them after the herd had been slaughtered and sold if there was a discrepancy there. But the magical thing about this uh, scam was that Cody never purchased or raised any cattle. So Tyson was paying millions of dollars to this man to raise cattle which never even got purchased. There was no cattle on his farm. He was essentially taking money, it sounds like here, and using it to trade live cattle futures with the CME group. But he was also simultaneously defrauding the CME group saying, hey, I've got you know a ton of cattle. I need to be able to hedge them. They allowed him to 
basically trade well above position limits in the live cattle futures. And so he's also defrauded the CME group. So he has been charged uh, with or could be charged with a maximum of 20 years in prison. He'll be facing that sentencing in August, but he just pled guilty to one count of wire fraud and has agreed to pay a quarter of a billion dollars in restitution fees. And yeah, it's been a pretty interesting thing to watch here unfold, but he literally was uh, taking money from Tyson, using it, parlaying that into the, live cattle futures market and trying to make money on both ends while simultaneously not raising any cattle. You know, Delaney, I feel like it's been some time since we've heard a a scam story in the industry. And I, I just got to say, how do these people think they're not going to get caught? I don't know. That's, I always wonder that as well. I am like, I'm such a person, like I get so anxious just about like telling a a white lie that I don't think that I can ever be capable of something like this. And I just can never wrap my head around it. Yep. Neither can I, but it's interesting to watch. That's for sure. And apparently we also found this out. Um, He and his family are like one of the largest potato growers, I believe in Washington state as well. So they like, they've got a lot going on. Yeah, it sounds like it, but it sounds like he's not going to have too much going on for what, the next 20 years? No, I think he no, no, but I'm sure not. Well, Zelaney, one other thing that we have been watching is the Biden administration's plan to spend $5 billion to help farmers of color who have been discriminated against by the USDA. But congressmen from Wisconsin and Utah are saying that the plan itself is discriminatory. So, of course, we've been talking about socially disadvantaged farmers is really what, you know, they've been saying in this plan that Biden has come out with. Um, but we're starting to see a little bit of pushback against it. Wisconsin Congressman Tom Tiffany and Utah Congressman Burgess Owens are introducing the Acre Act or the American Civil Rights and Equity Act, which Tiffany says would stop the administration from targeting relief based on race through the Emergency Release Fund for Farmers of Color Act. There's a lot of acts going on here and a lot of things to take into consideration. But Tiffany says Washington can't fix discrimination with more discrimination. He was quoted as saying, for them to say that we're going to discriminate based on race, sex, creed, or color, I believe really is un-American, and I believe it is something that should not be allowed to stand, so therefore we're putting this bill forward. He also said, I don't believe having more discrimination makes what may be wrong in the past right. Government-imposed discrimination is not something that our federal government should be doing in the 21st century. Let's treat all farmers equally and help them get through some of the times that we've went through over the last year. Tiffany hopes that this bill will get a good hearing in the House, and he has several members of Congress interested in the bill. And Tiffany also also said that he thinks farmers are all minorities at at this point. So definitely some pushback that we're seeing here. And honestly, I don't think that Tiffany and Owens are the only congressmen to to feel this way, but they definitely are speaking up about it. I mean, Tiffany is saying that he has several members of Congress interested in this bill. So it's definitely something that we're going to have to pay attention to. 
Absolutely. And that's very fitting for today's uh, theme of the podcast, Ashton, because we're talking more about that diversity, et cetera, here coming up. In the meantime, I've got just one other piece of news I thought was, well, two other pieces of news I think are pretty interesting. And those are both dealing with our exports and shipments. The first of which is looking at wheat and their exports that we've seen here over the last uh, couple of months. But China has been using an unprecedented amount of protein-rich wheat in animal feed, uh, largely in place of soybean meal and other soy products. And analysts are expecting that to potentially move the needle when it comes to the blending of soybean meal to keep imports in check for China. The company, or excuse me, the government has put up huge quantities of cheaper state wheat for sale to help with animal feed mills and help them replace some of the use of the domestic prices of corn, as well as soybean meal and other feedstuffs. But so far, we've seen more than 24 million tons of wheat that have been sold out of reserves this year. And that figure is expected to swell to some 40 million to 50 million tons uh, for the current marketing year. So I thought that was pretty interesting as we're really continuing to see here China starting to switch to a wheat for wheat need for animal feed. And I think that poses the question, are we going to see record wheat use this year with China continuing to purchase that wheat? But like I said, there was one other story. I'm trying to find it now here in my long list of stories that I was reading today, Ashton. Um, but there was another story Let me make, oh, here it is. Perfect. Okay, so the other one is looking at U.S. barge shipments. And I'm not entirely sure that my speculation here is correct, but we have seen pretty high shipments along the Mississippi, Illinois, Ohio, and Arkansas rivers heading south this week. And barge shipments of corn rose 21% from the previous week, while soybeans shipments were actually down week over week, 22%. But I'm curious, and I'll have to remember to put this one in the, put this feather in the hat and ask it on Market Monday. I'm curious to, to see, does this barge shipment indicate that we're seeing more corn leave U.S. shores, more shipments heading out and more exports chugging along? So reading between the lines there just a little bit, but uh It's pretty interesting to see these markets move and these factors all play out here. Well, Delaney, I don't have any other news to share, but I do have a funny joke that I saw on social media. Speaking of of ships, as we know, the Evergreen is completely unblocked from the Suez Canal. And I saw a video of it passing through um, in San Francisco about to go under the Golden Gate Bridge. And somebody cracked a joke about how they were going to get stuck under the Golden Gate Bridge next. And so I thought that was a little bit funny. I, I had to say that. Hopefully that doesn't happen. That would be bad. I'm very bad. They would be, uh, you know, not having really great luck on that ship, but uh, I think they made it through successfully and hopefully their journey is ending. But my news is ending for today, Delaney. I don't have anything else to share if you're ready to hop into markets. Yes, I certainly am because the market's definitely adjusted today after yesterday's limit up moves. But We're still ahead of where we were pre-report. We didn't see corn or soybeans give up all of yesterday's gains. And actually, new crop uh, still pushed ahead here. So it seems new crop is uh, 
ready to move forward old crop and eh, maybe not so excited about the acreage and stockpile numbers. Let's kick things off here in the May corn contract down four and a half cents today to close at 559 and three quarters. The D snoo crop up seven cents to close at 484 and a half. Soybeans today, big moves to the downside, but we're still uh, money ahead if you want to say that after yesterday's 70 cent gains. May soybeans down 34 and three quarters cents today to close at 14.02. The November up seven and a half cents to close at 12.63 and three quarters. Wheat higher, t- excuse me, wheat lower today as the May contract shed seven cents to close at 6.11. The July down five and a quarter to close at 6.10 and a half. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets today. As we know, yesterday was a little bit of an ugly day for them. And today we saw some of that sell-off continue. April live cattle down 95 cents today to close at 120.02. The June down 35 cents to close at 122.55. And in feeder cattle, April contract again unchanged today to close at 143.87 and a half. The May down 17 and a half cents to close at 149.22 and a half. Lean hogs higher today as well. April adding 72 and a half cents to close at 101.77 and a half. The May up a dollar 32 and a half to close at 102.82 and a half. And wrapping up our markets with the class three dairy milk futures. April down nine cents today to close at 17.51. The May up 22 to close at 18.45. Without further ado, Ashen, for today's final interview this week, let's turn it over to our conversation with Administrator Duchanel. Well, today we are talking to the new FSA administrator, Zach Ducheneau. Zach, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. Uh, Thanks for having me, Ashton. It's an honor to get to tell the story and represent the work that we're doing here at the FSA. So I want to talk a little bit more about you before we start talking about um, COVID relief, what you've been doing in your role um, and, and, you know, I kind of just want to talk about your, your background, because from what I understand, you are from a tribe in South Dakota. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm a member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. We're located in north central South Dakota. We're part of the Great Sioux Nation or the, the Lakota Oyate. And in 1851, our territory was all of western South Dakota, down into Nebraska, Wyoming, Montana, and North Dakota. So I'm curious, uh, Administrator Duchanel, tell us a little bit more about your former role as the Executive Director of the Intertribal Agriculture Council. And also to add to that, you know, you're the first Native American to fill this role with FSA. So that's going to be kind of exciting as well. But you played a lot of different roles, it sounds like, in your previous life before joining FSA. So how do you, what did you do in that role? And how do you take that with you, that experience with you into this role? A lot of the work that I did with the Intertribal Ag Council was helping Indian producers overcome the challenges that that represented as barriers to access to USDA programs. The remote locations, oftentimes not having a dedicated county office, those are things that the IAC has worked since 1987 to overcome, made a lot of headway in that regard. Since 2010, when I became a full-time employee, I worked a lot on the farm loan side, trying to help Indian producers secure that that, uh, better level of financing that you can get with a farm service agency 
And a lot of it was really trying to sell producers on the value and the change that has happened at the Farm Service Agency, especially during the Obama administration. The Prior to that, of course, Indian country had been in the throes of a class action lawsuit against the Farmers Home Administration, which turned into the Farm Service Agency over discriminatory practices in the in the lending side. So our work at the IEC really helped drive home the fact that maybe it's a new day at the FSA and things are starting to turn. So we did a lot of work getting folks into the farm loan program, helping them improve access with our sister agency in the mission area on the conservation side, the Natural Resources Conservation Service. And we just got started dabbling in risk management agency stuff a little bit when I got the got the call here. So, you know, these Native American tribes and communities, they have, you know, quite different values and traditions that are, you know, more unique to their specific tribes than that of, you know, a, a white person living in America. And so are you carrying over any of these traditions or values over into your role as the FSA administrator. Yeah, I think I am. And I, I don't think that they're that different from a lot of our, a lot of our white counterparts. So fairness, equity. And one of the things that I think is really unique in, in Indian country is a, is a sense of belonging to the ecosystem. Ours, ours is a existence that, where we're part of that ecosystem, not exercising dominion over it. That might be really the keystone uh, issue there. And what we hope to bring using that perspective in this role is really kind of resonates throughout the administration's new guidance with regard to climate change, equity, local and regional food production, and then which will help us lead to that recovery from the pandemic and the economic impacts there. Yeah, and I think that a lot of folks in rural America have questions about what that means, because we've heard a lot of discussion about, you know, creating more diversity in agriculture, especially in some of the uh, relief payments that are being put forth in your mind. What does that, what does that mean that they want to have more diversity across agriculture? And how do you think they'll go about achieving that? I think first we have to kind of zoom out and understand that in diversity there is strength, but the reality that we face today is that eighty nine point five percent of the land that is in agriculture production in 2017 is in control of white farmers. And that's a disproportionate amount when you consider that there aren't 89.5% white folks in this country. So to bring some equity to that would be to help farmers that are from other groups rise to a level that's proportionate to their citizenship here. Administrator Dushnow, if I can step in here, I have a follow-up question to that because I think the question that comes, at least in my mind, is that, you know, that makeup 
isn't necessarily reflective of our current population, but a lot of folks, other minorities, races, et cetera, aside, maybe haven't been interested in getting involved in agriculture or just, you know, that that's not something that's been in their uh, rear view mirror. How do you go about achieving diversity, I guess, if there aren't people to achieve diversity with? I'm not sure if that question makes sense or if you need me to rephrase oh, yeah. it a little bit. I, uh, I think what your question gets at is maybe the interest isn't there in the diverse yeah. population. Right. And I would say that's probably not accurate. And I don't want to get in a, get in a fight with our friends in the press, but the number of black farmers in this country is down from over a million in the 1920s. Indians have literally been farming and ranching on this continent since before the, the civilizations in Europe that enabled and then caused the exodus from Europe. So the fact that those groups have an innate interest and a history history of farming, I think is maybe one of the first misconceptions that we need to clear up. Administrator, I kind of have a a question here that I think is on a lot of producers' minds right now, and that is CFAP payments and kind of, you know, what's going on there? Is there any end in sight onto the pause on CFAP payments and when might we be able to have an answer? Yeah, there is there is an end in sight and and we hope that in the next few weeks we'll be able to get a more thoughtful program rolled out the rolled out to producers. One of the challenges that we noticed as we came in is that in the the rush to get CFAP out the door, many groups were missed. Many of our stakeholder groups were missed. And the pause that was put on by the administration was in hopes of bringing a more equitable slate of relief to our various stakeholder groups. Uh, We've had conversations about some farmers who had such such disasters that nobody came in to establish a county average. They were going to get left out of this program if we didn't make some changes. So in order to allow for that conversation and that policymaking, we have extended that deadline. And I think on CFAP, didn't we go to April 5th or 9th? And we're trying to be more inclusive so that we can better provide that relief that Congress has authorized us to carry out. And Administrator, I have just one final question before we wrap things up today. You know, we've talked a lot about a lot of different issues, uh, your background, your experience. Moving forward, what's going to be in your, on your plate that you're focusing on here moving forward, first and foremost? Well, I, I believe inherently that the we can do a better job of ag finance in this country. Average, the farm debt has increased an average of 4% per year since 1994. The average age of the farmer has risen to almost 60 years old. So the next generation, for some reason or another, isn't interested. It could be the fact that they see 
their parents having to work off the farm and make a majority of their income off the farm in most cases, I think we can do a better job than that. And one of the things that I'd like to try to do while I'm at the Farm Service Agency and within the USDA is to help build a system where we can uncheck those three boxes. Well, Administrator uh, Duchenal, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. We're really excited to see, you know, where the future goes for this new administration. And we just really appreciate you coming on and talking to us today. It's been my pleasure. Uh, jump back on the list and we can do it again later on down the road once I've got a, got my feet under me a little better. Thanks again there to Administrator Duchanel for coming on the podcast and talking to us about the future of the FSA and what we can expect. Like you said, Delaney, we're talking a whole lot about diversity and that program within the USDA, I, I guess I should say, um, you know, isn't excluded from that. So we're just going to have to wait and see what the future holds here. Absolutely, we will, Ash. And it's always interesting to see how new administrations come in and do things a little differently than the last one. And, you know, as a whole, people are generally not super receptive to change, but uh, hopefully some of these changes that USDA is implementing will be changes for the better. Certainly, Delaney. But folks, you can always follow along with the Ag News Daily podcast at agnewsdaily.com and on social media as well at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.